Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Four infamous and chilling killers of the 1980s. In a time known for big hair, roller skates, and metal bands, the 1980s wasn't all fun and games. It was also an era filled with some of the most notorious and terrifying serial killers to ever exist. These are four infamous and chilling killers of the 1980s. Number four, Sunset Strip Killers. A former naval intelligence officer's son, Doug Clark, moved all over the world while growing up. After graduating from Culver Military Academy, Clark enlisted in the Air Force, but was discharged as it was clear his life was headed somewhere else. He ended up in Los Angeles, moving from job to job, often being fired due to his violent temper. In his downtime, he would hang out at one of his favorite clubs, Little Nashville. It was a seedy pub that occasionally played live music, and the place where he met his partner in crime, Carol. Carol M. Bundy grew up with two alcoholic parents. 
At a young age, her mother died, and by 11, her father was sexually abusing her on a regular basis. At 17, she married, then later on divorced her first husband, who was 40 years her senior. At 37, she became infatuated with her apartment block manager and part-time singer Jack Murray, and would frequent the Little Nashville bar to watch him play. Carol would cross paths with Clark, and they bonded over dark sexual fantasies. Clark moved into her place shortly after, despite Bundy still wanting to be with Jack. The pair would have threesomes with prostitutes, but it got old after a while, and Clark then began showing interest in an 11-year-old girl who was their neighbor. Bundy saw this and helped lure the girl, encouraging her to play sexual games and pose for lewd pictures with Clark, but he still wanted more. He began expressing his desire to kill a girl during sex. Bundy ended up buying two automatic pistols for Clark, and then in June of 1980, the killings began. Clark came home one night and told her about how he picked up two teen prostitutes from the Sunset Strip, Gina Narano and Cynthia Chandler. Once in the vehicle, he ordered them to perform fellatio and that's when he shot them both in the head. He took their bodies to a garage and performed necrophilia before dumping them close to the Ventura Freeway where they found them. Twelve days later, he killed again. Exe Wilson and Karen Jones were also prostitutes from the Strip and again he lured them inside his car before shooting them. He hacked off Wilson's head and placed it inside the freezer. When Bundy saw it, she was initially shocked but later helped Clark clean it up and put makeup on it before it was used as a sex toy. Three days after another body was found, it was Marnette Corner, a runaway killed three weeks earlier which would have made her Clark's first known victim. And then it was Bundy's turn. She was still infatuated with Jack and in a bid to impress him, told him the details about what she and Clark had done. Murray was disturbed by the information and implied he might go to the cops with it. Afraid they would be turned in, she then lured him back to his van and inside shot and decapitated him. Witnesses saw her and when police were called, she confessed, which is when they were both arrested. Clark was charged with six counts of murder while Bundy was charged for two. In the end, he was sentenced to death and is currently still on death row at the age of 69. Meanwhile, Bundy accepted a plea bargain and was sentenced to life in prison where she died of heart failure in 2003. Number 3. Larry Eiler Born in Indiana in 1952 to a dysfunctional household, Larry Eiler grew up suffering abuse from his parents and stepfathers. It was so horrific that the details had been prevented from being released, and the state sought to remove him and have him live with relatives instead. As he grew older, he joined a monastery but left and ended up working low-paying jobs, including one as a house painter. The first time his name signaled on police radar was when he stabbed an ex-marine who was hitchhiking in town. This marine managed to get away and testified against Eiler, he was paid $2,500 for his trouble and Eiler wasn't prosecuted. But two years after this incident, a good amount of bodies began to surface. The first was found on March 22nd of 1982. Jay Reynolds' body was brutally stabbed outside Lexington, Kentucky. Then on October 3rd, 14-year-old Delvoid Baker's body was discovered next to a road in Indianapolis. Not even two weeks later, another body was found dumped by the roadside in Lowell, Indiana. 
This person suffered 32 stab wounds, most of them to the head. By July 2nd of 1983, there would be a total of 12 bodies found, and the 13th victim was Ralph Calise. He was found bound with duct tape and clothesline, then stabbed 17 times and was dead for less than 12 hours. Soon after this, an officer from Indiana spotted a pickup truck parked along I-65. Two men were walking towards the trees and one of them looked like he was bound. When the officer approached, the younger man told the officer that Eiler had sexually propositioned him and asked to tie him up. The officer searched the pickup and found a clothesline, nylon, surgical tape, and a hunting knife with blood on it. The knife was examined and it matched the same blood type as that of Ralph Calise. While the prosecution was still building a case against Eiler, he was still free to kill. By this time, the police had linked him to 18 of the killings but did not have enough to charge or arrest him. They put him on surveillance and in retaliation, Eiler sued them. He was denied the suit, however, but upon leaving the court, he was arrested for murdering Ralph Calise. However, during a pre-trial, a judge deemed all the evidence was obtained illegally and got rid of the case. On May 7, 1984, shortly after Eiler was released on bail, the body of David Block was found. He had been killed in the same manners as the rest. But finally, soon, police caught a break. On August 21st, an apartment janitor noticed two large hefty bags in the trash dump. He knew right away a stranger dumped it and was mad but also curious of what was being thrown in his bin. He opened one of the bags and found a human leg. It turns out in there was the body of a known prostitute, 16-year-old Danny Bridges. After witnesses pointed to Eiler throwing the bags, he was officially charged with the murder, unlawful restraint, and kidnapping of Danny and received the death penalty. On March 6, 1994, Eiler died from complications due to AIDS. After his death, his lawyer, with permission from him, released the names of 21 victims he had killed. It also listed the places and dates of where the victims were found. Eiler said he had an accomplice for four of the killings, but the lawyer was not allowed to release that name. Number 2. Andre Chikatilo Known as the Butcher of Rostov, it's no surprise Andre Chikatilo is considered one of the most prolific and violent killers of the 1980s. He grew up in famine-poor Russia. While he was a diligent student, he lacked social skills and had trouble forming relationships with women because he was impotent. After failing to enter Moscow State University, he went into national service before becoming a telephone engineer. Since he was still unmarried, his sister and her husband set him up with a local girl named Faina. After two weeks, they were married out of convenience, and despite Andre's problems in the bedroom, they were able to conceive two children. Chikatilo then switched to becoming a teacher and it was here when he started sexually assaulting his students. Complaints about him started pouring in and he was forced to move from one school to another before settling in an area around Rostov. His first known murder happened on December 22, 1978. He lured nine-year-old Yelena Zakidnova into an abandoned home he had purchased and attempted to rape her. He was unable to achieve an erection, however, so he stabbed the victim three times before strangling her to death, during which time he ejaculated. Afterwards, he threw her body into the river, and it was found two days later. 
Even though a multitude of evidence and witness pointed to Andre, another man who had a history of rape and murder was charged and arrested and eventually executed for the crime. After this, Andre realized he could only achieve sexual arousal when he was killing women or children. The chance to relive the experience gnawed at him, and he yearned for more. His next victim was a 17-year-old boarding school student. He took her into the forest under the pretense of drinking vodka and relaxing. Once there, he jumped on the girl and violently attacked her before stabbing her multiple times and attempting to rape her. Andre would go on to kill 50-plus more victims just like this. His M.O. was to engage the victim in conversation and lure them away from populated areas, then without warning attack them. The majority of them suffered multiple knife wounds to the face and neck, chest, and pelvic region. In most of his earlier victims, the eyes were often damaged or taken out of their sockets completely. He would go on to say he did so because he initially believed in the saying that a killer's face would be imprinted in the eye of the victim. He then became a clerk for a raw materials factory and this gave him a chance to travel from place to place, picking up more victims. A task force was assembled and the news of a serial killer soon made the rounds. Based on semen obtained on the victim's bodies, the police were convinced they were looking for a killer with AB blood type. Andre's name was added on file and in one instance of the investigation, he was stopped and questioned, but his blood type was shown to be A instead of the AB the suspect had. But what they didn't know is that Chikatilo's blood type was indeed A, but his other bodily fluids registered AB. He apparently belonged to a rare group called non-secretors, whose blood type can only be taken from a blood sample, and would show a different result when taken from semen or other body fluids. By this time, the police hired Dr. Alexander Bukanovsky, a psychiatrist, to create a profile for their killer. After examining evidence, he stated that this murderer was a necrosadist who was between 40 and 50 years old. He was likely married but suffered from impotence and had trouble forming relationships with women at a young age. He also pointed out that the killings occurred on weekdays around mass transit hubs and that the killer likely traveled regularly for work or was tied to a schedule. The description fit Chikatilo to a T. Even though this was enlightening to the police, it would take several more years before they would capture him on November 20th, 1990. His last victim was 22-year-old Svetlana Karostik. She was killed near Donleskov Station, one of the places under surveillance by police. In fact, one officer noticed Chikatilo emerge from the woods and he had soil and grass stains on his elbows. He was approached, questioned, and his name taken down before they let him go. By the time her body was found, they examined the reports filed by the men stopped and questioned. Andre's name was familiar because he had been questioned prior. He was put under surveillance for six days where he was seen approaching and engaging lone young women and children, and by November 20th, he was arrested. Chikatilo, however, would not admit anything, but on the last day of his detainment, the police invited Dr. Bukanovsky to speak with him. During the interview, he read parts of his profile to Andre, and within two hours, he broke down and started crying, admitting to his crimes. Even though there were 36 victims, Chikatilo admitted to killing more than 50 in total. He was found guilty on 53 murder charges and sentenced to death. On February 14, 1994, he was led to a small, soundproof room and executed via a single gunshot to the back of the head.
Number one, Jose Rodriguez Vega. Jose Rodriguez Vega was a serial killer from Santander, Spain. Nicknamed El Mataviejas, which translates to the old lady killer, he killed more than 16 women aged 60 to 93 and had previously served a sentence for raping five younger women. Vega grew up in a highly dysfunctional family. It's suspected his grandfather killed his grandmother and his dad and brother were alcoholics. Meanwhile, his mother was a dominant and aggressive woman prone to violence. By the time Vega was eight, a 50-year-old woman had sexually abused him and after this occurrence, he would masturbate constantly. At this time, he also noticed he was sexually attracted to his mother, but kept these feelings a secret. Vega was known to have a violent temper and when he was 18, threw his wheelchair-bound father down a flight of stairs. He was kicked out of the house and eventually ended up marrying his classmate, which he fathered a son with, but they soon split up because of his temper. By 21, he was arrested for raping two women and the attempted rape of three others. He was sentenced to 27 years in prison, but the sentence was lowered to just eight after Vega wrote letters to the victims asking for forgiveness. Four out of the five forgave him, and under Spanish law, this lowered his sentence. Before he was released, he ended up in another relationship. He tried to move back home, but his mother wouldn't let him because of the relations he had with this unmarried woman. Vega took the slight to heart and considered this a reason for his murders. The first victim was a 60-year-old prostitute, Victoria Morales, whom he frequently slept with. They were in bed talking when he suffocated her by covering her mouth and nose. On August 6, 1987, he killed 82-year-old Margarita Gonzalez by entering her home, raping, and then suffocating her. She was found with her false teeth in her throat. The following month, he killed 80-year-old Carmen Fernandez, and by October, he struck again by raping, beating, and killing 66-year-old Natividad Espinosa. Many of the deaths were attributed to natural causes because of the women's age, despite the fact that the families complained they were bruising on the bodies, and the coroner indicated that three women had vaginal injuries. The following year, on April 19, 1988, Julia Fernandez was found dead in her home. The jurisdiction was under the Spanish Civil Guard, and they learned she recently had her door reinforced. They found out the worker she hired was Vega, who had a history of rape, which they then shared that info with police and soon realized some of the other victims also had their doors reinforced before they died. Vega was soon arrested and nonchalantly admitted to killing nine women, who he says were surrogates for his mother. However, a search of his home revealed a special room with red painted walls. Inside it were more than 30 random items taken from his victims' homes as mementos. When the Roman items were shown on TV, the family members of the nine victims recognized various pieces belonging to their deceased relative. Another seven more families came forward being able to identify objects, but to date there are still 10% of the mementos that lay unclaimed and unidentified, implying it's most likely Vega killed more victims. On October 24, 2002, while walking on the prison grounds, Vega was killed. He was attacked by two inmates and repeatedly stabbed. When asked why, they said they killed him because he was a rapist and considered a pariah under the code of honor in prison. 
So there were four infamous and chilling killers of the 1980s. Murder knows no bounds. Despite these crimes happening decades ago, many of the victims of these killers still remain unidentified or unknown. If you like this video, then let us know by hitting that like button and remember to subscribe so every week we can bring you a new Scary Mysteries video to check out. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next week.